When the Woman Screams is a horror podcast that explores the cultural messaging behind why women scream in horror films. Content may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello and welcome to When the Woman Screams, a podcast where we break down horror films one scream at a time. In today's episode, we're exploring female horror screams as a reflection of maternal grief, and we're asking ourselves what those screams have to tell us about how popular culture defines a bad mother. I'm your host, Elizabeth Irwin, and on this podcast, we talk blood, guts, and spoilers, so listener discretion is advised. This time, Ward, what I told them about brothers loving each other is going to work. Now, you're always too logical. I used a tender approach. A woman gets results using her heart, not her head. Mother, all my friends are wearing makeup. Vanessa? Rebecca's mother lets her wear makeup. I am not Rebecca's mother. If you want to live with her rules, fine. Go live in her house. Young lady, I do not want to see you in makeup. Is that clear? Yes, Mom. Good. Mom, I'm 13. You're too young. Cindy Clark's mother let her babysit when she was nine. Well, Cindy Clark's mom is a drunken slut. Sometimes idealized to be pearl-wearing, stay-at-home doyens of respectability, and at other times hailed as superwomen who juggle work and home all while remaining perfectly quaffed, motherhood is as American as apple pie. And from that ideal has stemmed very specific notions about what it means to be a good mother expectations that have been consistently reinforced by popular culture. Whether it's June Cleaver patiently extolling to her sons the importance of listening to their father, or Claire Huxtable juggling career, civic engagement, and raising five children effortlessly, consistent in these images is a framing of a woman's worth as being directly tied to her offspring, or lack thereof. And yet, what makes a good mother is explicitly connected to decade-specific cultural norms. In the 1950s, women were cast to be the heart of the nuclear family, a status summed up in this clip from David Hoffman's PBS documentary on contextualizing the 1960s. And as responsible as anyone else for the care of these bounties is the woman in the American home. More often than not, it is the woman who holds the family purse strings to stretch out the family paycheck. Hers is the struggle eternal. But in the 1970s, this construction of motherhood was blown apart by second-wave feminism thinking that advocated largely for women to have increased employment opportunities outside of the home and more importantly, an increased authority over their own reproductive decisions. In the 1980s, popular culture was actively reflecting mothers working outside of the home, while simultaneously balancing the demands of family and marriage, a perfect juggling act made famous by a 1983 perfume commercial. In light of this image of mothers as superhuman beings of perfection pervading television and film, it was inevitable, really, that a backlash would ensue. But the backlash didn't come in the form of demonizing motherhood, 
but strangely as an amplification of motherhood. In 1990, Foster Klein and Jim Fay introduced the term helicopter parent to describe parents, although typically mothers, who are overly involved and invested in the lives of their children. These mothers not only filled their children's every waking moment with activities, but they also provided a near constant level of supervision. These generational fluctuations in what an idealized form of mothering should look like demonstrate that motherhood is not a fixed construct, but a fluid one. And while most popular culture images maintained a privileging of her children's needs over her own as central to motherhood, there was one genre that actively resisted defining motherhood in such pure and sacred terms. In horror films, the association of motherhood with monstrosity is so pronounced that it has become an acknowledged trope. Because horror films typically trespass against cultural norms, it is not at all surprising that one of its favorite targets is motherhood. Well, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Overbearing and off-time-acidal, mothers come in all forms. There's the perverted religious zealotry of Margaret White and Carrie that manifests itself in the extreme psychological and physical abuse of her daughter. Christ, she may have committed the sin of lustful thoughts. No, Mama, oh, don't no. lie to me, Carrietta. Don't you know by now I can see inside you? I can see the sin as surely as God no, can. No, we'll pray. No, we'll pray, no, woman. No, pray to Jesus for our lustful no, sins. No, no, The disturbingly intimate relationship between mother and son in The Killing Kind that sees Thelma cover for and facilitate her son's bloody crimes. Keep away from her, Terry. Who, Thelma? I saw the way you looked at her. And I wish you'd call me Mom. I was just looking. Mm -hmm. You stay away from him, do you hear? Look at you, show it everything you got. He did this. It's your fault. I saw you leading him on like a cheap whore. Now you stay away from him, do you hear me? <sighs> and the psychological torment of mothers like Grace and the others, whose own psychotic break is both the cause of and a reaction to filicide. At first I couldn't understand what the pillow was doing in my hands. Why you didn't move. And those are just a few examples in a genre heavily populated with bad mother archetypes. But with the emergence of the so-called elevated or prestige horror, a rather insulting term that attempts to delineate horror films that critics find to have more value than horror's typical lowbrow brethren, some have noted a move away from bad mothers toward grief-stricken ones. Of 2014's The Babadook, the story of a recently widowed mother whose difficult interactions with her strange son are exacerbated by the presence of a storybook monster, 
Director Jennifer Kent explains how motherhood fuels the film's narrative. But I've seen every woman that I know say, um, you know, I wish I was a better mother and feel like they're not a good mother, even if they're extraordinary mothers. So I really wanted to touch on that. You know, I really wanted to be honest about mother love and the shadow side of that. And uh, it's had a wonderful response from, from women who, who felt this collective sigh of relief. Oh, there's others that aren't perfect out there as well. And I think that's one of the really important things about the film, actually. Similarly, 2018's Hereditary became a critical darling, fueled in large part by Toni Collette's performance's Annie, a woman whose child dies while under the care of her other child. The ensuing intersection of grief, anger, and maternal reckoning led film critic Emily Vanderwolf in her interview with the film's director, Ari Aster, to highlight how the movie plays with, quote, the idea of parents and children creating that sort of Ouroboros of pain, end quote, and is most readily visible in the mother figures. Given the praise heaped on these films, it might seem as though maternal grief in horror films is a rare occurrence, but the truth is far more complicated. So, in today's episode, we're exploring three seminal horror films that grapple with maternal grief. 1971's Who Slew Auntie Rue, 1980's Friday the 13th, and 2019's La Llorona. And we're thinking through how these screams contribute to ideas of what it means to be a good mother. Up first in our discussion is 1971's Who Slew Auntie Rue, which, along with having one truly awesome title, is an excellent example of how horror films sometimes connect maternal grief with monstrosity. Technically, the film is a British one, but with its American director, star, and distribution company, its sensibility is arguably more consistent with American horror films of the era than it is British ones. Who Slew Auntie Rue is typically considered a part of the high exploitation subgenre and stars Shelley Winters as Auntie Rue, a wealthy widow renowned for the Christmas parties she throws for the local orphans. But her kind demeanor and generous spirit belie substantial mental health issues brought about by the accidental death of her daughter, a daughter whose mummified remains still reside in the nursery. When Christopher and Katie, a brother and sister, attend the lavish holiday party, Auntie Rue is taken with Katie's resemblance to her deceased daughter. Her desire to keep the child with her sets in motion events that ultimately end in tragedy. Who Slew Auntie Rue is a strange movie to watch because the audience is so clearly being positioned to regard the titular character as dangerously unhinged. Her actions, such as refusing to relinquish the body of her late daughter, singing lullabies to the corpse, and maintaining the nursery to look exactly as it did prior to the child's death, are meant to ensure that the audience reads Auntie Rue as the villain of the narrative. And for its original audience, those signifiers may have worked. In the early 1970s, understanding about the psychological impact of the loss of a child was still extremely limited. Auntie Rue's actions, which are clearly not normal by any objective standard, position her as an other, meaning someone who, by virtue of either birth or behavior, doesn't reflect the dominant culture. And in this case, that means a woman with a child, an alive child. 
Auntie actions are designed to signal a perversion of motherhood and to reflect that she isn't a real mother, but an other type of mother. And in horror movies, the other usually becomes the monster. Our first scream occurs fairly early on in the film, when Auntie Rue has convened a seance in order to contact her deceased daughter. The seance is led by the unscrupulous Mr. Benton and Auntie Rue's nefarious servants, all of whom are colluding to convince the woman that contact has been made with her deceased daughter, so as to bilk her out of even more money. Where are you, darling? Please let me see you again. Catherine, you've got the strength to come through to us. Speak to us. Speak to us, Catherine. Here I am, Mommy. Uh, where? <laughs> Please, baby, let me hold you again. Let me hold you. Mommy, I have to leave now. No, Catherine, Catherine, don't, don't go. Don't go yet. Talk to me some more, baby. Talk to me. Why? No! Catherine, stay. Stay, my darling. Please forgive me. Forgive me. Give me another chance. I love you so much. Oh, Catherine. I need you. Stay with me. I'm so lonely. Stay with me. Catherine! Auntie Rue's maternal scream is a plea to her daughter not to leave and is the film's first real moment where Auntie Rue's maternal grief is highlighted. And to director Curtis Harrington's credit, the scene is asking viewers to have a multi-level and complicated response to Auntie Rue's grief. On one level, the pain of the character is palpable, and when combined with our understanding that she is being taken advantage of, is a clear invitation to regard Auntie Rue with pity. But the moment also clearly positions the character as unwell, and in horror films, unwell equates to dangerous. This association is a thread that the film continues to pull at throughout various scenes depicting Auntie Rue's precarious mental state, ranging from her belief that Katie is the reincarnation of her late daughter to her frantic need to prepare dinner in the wake of the corpse finally turning to dust. What's truly striking about Auntie Rue's screams is how differently they read to modern audiences. According to a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, Mothers who lost a child were 50% more likely to experience an affective disorder, such as depression or bipolar disorder, than mothers who did not lose a child. An understanding of reactive depression, meaning depression that was the result of a traumatic event, such as a death, didn't enter the cultural conversation until the 1970s, and it was, at least initially, largely confined to scientific circles. But today, thanks to social media campaigns and YouTube vlogs, our awareness of depression stemming from grief is significantly greater. With that frame of reference, Annie Rue doesn't read as menacing. She reads as tragic and very, very lost. But if Auntie Rue is truly the film's monster, then horror film conventions dictate that she must be dispatched in order to restore order. And that objective informs our next scream, in which Christopher, who has seemingly convinced himself that Auntie Rue is the witch from Hansel and Gretel and intends to eat both him and his sister, sets Annie Rue on fire. Bad children! Bad children! Bad! 
here are obviously those of a woman who realizes that she is about to die. But there's also a wounded quality to them because she realizes that, once again, she is being robbed of the ability to mother a child. The fact that Christopher invokes the story of Hansel and Gretel is not by accident. By using the tale of a sadistic older woman who lives in a house of candy to frame Christopher's perception of Auntie Rue, the film is asking us to associate Auntie Rue and her so-called gingerbread house with the villains of the Brother Grimm fable. It's pop culture shorthand that fills in the blanks for the audience, lest we have too much sympathy for the character. But here's the rub. We know that Auntie Rue is not a witch and has absolutely no intention of eating the children. Her death stems directly from a misunderstanding of her maternal grief. And that the film asks us to cheer for the children who are making jokes while the woman burns and to feel that a sense of justice is being served further demonizes a woman who never deserved to be vilified in the first place. This idea of connecting maternal grief with monstrosity rears its head again in our second film, a quintessential slasher film with a depraved killer, bare-breasted camp counselors, explicit gore, and a remote location that pretty much screams Americana. Friday the 13th is not a film immediately associated with maternal grief, and yet it is the loss of a child that fuels the narrative from beginning to end. In the 1980 film, Camp Crystal Lake, a once popular summer camp, is about to be reopened after having been shuttered for years in the wake of a young boy's drowning. But an unseen killer has absolutely no intention of letting that happen. The first kill of the film happens relatively quickly, and it involves Annie, a counselor trying to find her way to Camp Crystal Lake. Having taken a wrong turn, she decides to hitch a ride only to wind up in the vehicle of the killer. In this scene, she jumps from the moving car, but is unable to escape the killer, played by Betsy Palmer. Hey, wasn't that the road up for Camp Crystal Lake back there? Uh, I think we better stop. Please? about this scene is how differently it reads once you know the identity of the killer. Fans of the slasher genre expect to mock the bad decisions being made by the characters throughout the film, because the built-in expectation is that their stupidity is a contributing factor in their demise. It's why we groan when we see a character fleeing up the stairs of a house instead of out the door. As viewers, we know that these decisions will have consequences, 
And it's also an opportunity for those of us watching to pat ourselves on the back and think, nope, we'd never be that stupid. And our initial impression of Annie is that she is making an incredibly stupid decision in getting into the car of someone she doesn't know. Her scream here works, at least initially, as confirmation of that poor decision. But the film's ending revelation that Mrs. Voorhees is the person behind the wheel reframes Annie's scream. With her conservative haircut and practical sweater and slacks combo, Mrs. Voorhees looks like the image of a good mother. And here, good equates to trustworthy. The person Annie sees behind the wheel isn't some shifty-looking man who raises culturally ingrained suspicions, but the exact opposite. And so while her scream is absolutely one of fear, it is also fueled by the shock of being confronted with the knowledge that safety is an illusion and that sometimes the most dangerous threat looks like the mother next door. In 1980, the United States was seeing the pronounced backlash to the feminist ideals of the 1970s in the form of the Reagan Revolution. Conservatives were quick to pin all of society's woes on the breakdown of the nuclear family. That, it was argued, started when mothers began to work outside of the home in large numbers. In her book, Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Susan Faludi demonstrates how the 1980s saw a marked push to the return of traditional values. She points to studies that showed a decline in fathers sharing care responsibilities for their children, and newspaper headlines that referred to childless women as, quote, depressed and confused, end quote. The cultural messaging was clear. The most important role of a woman could take was that of mother, and those who chose not to, or were unable to, were destined to never feel whole. This lack of wholeness comes into play in our second scream. Having dispatched of the campers, well, all but final girl Alice, played by Adrian King, Mrs. Voorhees reveals to the traumatized girl her identity as the killer, and she provides insight into the reason behind her killing spree. Innocent Jason, my only child, Jason. You let him drown. You never paid any attention. What you did to him. Look what you did to him. Mrs. Voorhees' scream as she moves to attack Alice here is a complicated one. As a mother whose child has died, she occupies a space of motherhood otherness that invites pity even while her bloody actions invite disgust. On the surface, Mrs. Voorhees' rage is directed toward camp counselors who were too self-involved to watch the child left in their care. But her monologue in this moment also indicates that she feels she shoulders some of the blame for Jason's death. By pointing out that she was working when it happened, the unspoken suggestion is that she had been home being a good mother, then Jason would still be alive. But instead, she was cooking, an overtly domestic act, but for the camp counselors instead of her own child. That this reckoning takes place in the cabin, the de facto summer home of the teen counselors, is by design. Mrs. Voorhees, who never has an identity, is explicitly framed by being a wife and mother, 
and she's returning to a home surrogate to enact revenge for a loss she attributes, at least in some part, to her working outside of the home. The scream she releases as she moves to kill Alice is a wounded one, encompassing her rage and her grief at the loss of her child. It's also an auditory marker that hammers home the point that her psychotic break is the result of profound grief that she no longer has a child to mother. It's easy to rank Mrs. Voorhees among the homicidal bad mothers of horror, but doing so without acknowledging her maternal grief, a grief that is exacerbated by cultural messaging that being a good mother means adhering to traditional gender roles and staying in the home, does a vast disservice to the complexity of her motivations. But maternal grief isn't always about the loss of a child. Sometimes it's about how the deep sorrow that comes from suffering a personal loss impacts one's mothering. Such is the case in 2019's The Curse of La Llorona, where recently widowed caseworker Anna Tate Garcia, played by Linda Cardellini, is struggling to balance her own grief against the caregiving needs of her children. When she has assigned the case of a mother who has locked her children in a closet in a bid to save them from the murderous spirit, La Llorona, played by Maricel Ramirez, events are set in motion that ultimately culminates in a showdown between mothers. In our first scream, La Llorona has managed to breach the entry of the Tate Garcia household, where she is absconded with Anna's daughter, Sam. Frantic and knowing that La Llorona intends to kill her child, Anna follows the two into the water where a battle ensues. On the surface, the screams informing this scene register as a guttural reaction of a mother attempting to save her child from a dangerous situation. But they also stem from an intersection of anger and grief. As the audience, we know that Anna is struggling in her role as a single parent, and part of what is happening here is an expression of anger and sadness that she has been left to protect her family all alone. She questions whether she can truly do it alone, and the complexity of this scene indicates that perhaps it's right for her to be worried. Although Anna and La Llorona have encountered one another previously, this moment marks their first real interaction, and this should be a moment that allays Anna's concerns over whether her abilities alone as a mother are enough to protect her children. After all, her instinct to race into the water to save her daughter ties into our expectation of what a good mother should be. A good mother should be self-sacrificing. But complicating this scene is the arrival of Alverer, a former priest Anna has enlisted to help protect her family against La Llorona. As Anna battles underwater to free Sam, Alvara engages in a hybrid of ritual and prayer above the water that culminates in his placing his hand in the water and breaking La Llorona's control of the situation. In this moment, he clearly reads as the paternal presence to Anna's maternal one. 
previously, Anna noted that her husband was the religious one, and Olvera's status as a former priest makes him the ideal husband surrogate. Anna is only able to save Sam with his help, and that reality suggests Anna's worries that she alone is enough is based in some truth. Her screams are an awareness that she was right all along. She really can't protect her children alone. And that idea that children fare better in two-parent households is an inherently patriarchal one. But is it an idea that might resonate with horror film fans? Research indicates that in young adults ages 18 to 25, 55% of young men disagreed with traditional gender roles of fathers as breadwinner and mother as homemaker, a substantial difference from the 83% of young men who disagreed in 1994. And since this is the same age group that is the target demographic for horror films, we have to ask ourselves what Anna's screams for help from a husband's surrogate really represent. This quasi-nuclear family dynamic also comes into play in our next scream. Alone in the attic, Anna's two children are stunned when La Llorona appears to them in her human form. Thinking she has finally found one of her lost children, La Llorona quickly resumes her spirit form when Anna and Alvara appear. Behold the cross of the Lord and be gone with his interesting about the female screams heard here is how they frame two entirely different experiences with maternal grief. The initial scream comes from La Llorona as she charges toward Anna. Having just mistakenly believed that she was being reunited with one of her children, La Llorona's scream is a powerful intersection of grief and anger, fueled in no small part by a desire to lash out at mothers who still have their children. La Llorona's grief is complicated for the audience because while we see her sadness and yearning as she caresses the face of Anna's son, we also know that her children died because she murdered them. There's an implication that she deserves her grief in a way that Anna simply doesn't. For her part, Anna's scream is a renunciation of La Llorona's pain. As the mother for whom the audience is positioned to align, Anna's grief is acceptable because she did nothing to deserve it unlike La Llorona. This issue of which mother deserves our sympathy is then complicated by the film's explicit privileging of white motherhood. We know that in her human form, La Llorona is a Mexican woman, and we know that the only other mother the film introduces us to is Patricia Alvarez, played by Patricia Vasquez, who is also a Latina. Like La Llorona, Patricia's arc is one of a mother so consumed with the deaths of her children at the hands of a malevolent spirit, deaths which are facilitated when Anna dismisses Patricia's fears as silly folktale and removes the children from her home, that she is willing to sacrifice Anna's children to La Llorona. 
that the film depicts its two Latina mothers as menacing while casting its white mother as an innocent reflects a significant and deep bias in how North American motherhood is framed largely by whiteness. And it's a framing that resigns more often than not black mothers or mothers of color to positions of otherness. As the screams in this episode remind us, women who outlive their children occupy a position of otherness in American culture because such a loss violates the natural order and because our collective understanding of the complexities of maternal grief have historically been so limited. The screams we've explored today consider how horror films use maternal grief to create monsters and why that has cultural reverberations and what it means to be a good mother. This wraps up our look at maternal grief screams. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I recommend Screening Motherhood in Contemporary World Cinema, edited by Asma Saeed, Women, Monstrosity, and the Horror Film, Gyna Horror, by Ara Harrington, Maternal Horror Film, Melodrama, and Motherhood by Sarah Arnold, and Living with Loss by Anne Kane Fingerbin. If you have comments, gripes, and observations about this episode, you can find me at the When the Woman Screams website, link in the description. In our next episode, we'll be considering how horror films have grappled with workplace sexual harassment, and we'll be thinking through what these screams have to tell us about toxic masculinity and female achievement. I hope you'll scream with me. Mm -hmm.